0: Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today, beginning into Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as we make our way through this great Old Testament wisdom book. You may recall that we're now in the middle of a mini-section within the book of Ecclesiastes. We began last week. Uh, This section really starts in verse 16, and we'll carry on to the end of chapter 2, although today we're only looking the first 11 verses of chapter 2, but in this section of the book, the preacher Solomon is telling us all of the various ways that he tried to find meaning, significance uh, in life under the sun. And today we're going to look at his attempt at self-indulgence, at pursuit of pleasure. We're going to find that today, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as we read verses 1 to 11, on page 553, if you picked up. Cart Bible on the way in. Uh, before we come to this word and read it together, please join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing on our study. O oh, gracious Lord and God, you have called us not only to be uh, people who uh, read your word but become doers of your word. You have brought us forth by your word of truth and you are the one who implants your word in us as you work meekness in our hearts and souls. And so make us meek to receive your word, to worship you as we hear it, as we consider it, as we love you through it by the working of your Holy Spirit. Help us to rejoice in Christ your Son and to follow after him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know the word of God as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the first 11 verses. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and Gold and the treasure of kings and provinces, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. It was, uh, it was Thursday morning this week at precisely 2.38 a.m., I know it was 2.38 because that was the moment that I shook awoke, uh, that I awoke with something on my mind, some thought that I couldn't get rid of. And when that happens, you know the routine. At first, you hope or, or expect almost that the thought is just going to pass. And so you take a breath. You close your eyes. You wait uh, to fall back asleep. And when that doesn't work after a while, you give in. And you say, I'll, I'll think about it for a little bit. Because once I've thought about it, once I've worked out a solution, then, then I can get back to sleep. And so you ponder. Well, that doesn't help. And so you think maybe then, uh, maybe you're just not comfortable enough. Uh, so you fluff the pillow. Uh, you adjust the blankets, you try a different position and, and you fluff the pillow again and you find another uh, position. And that's where I was tossing and turning until about 4.30 in the morning when I finally decided, I'm just gonna get up and do something productive. I'm not just going to lay here and keep turning and tossing, but you know the way that it happens when you're, when you're looking for that comfort, looking to return to something uh, easy and, uh, and back to sleep. Well, last week in our study of Ecclesiastes, we, we began to look down some of these dead ends where humanity, humanity searches uh, for meaning, for significance in our vain and temporary lives. Last week, we looked at worldly wisdom. We looked at that never-ending journey of people who were always learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. And this week, Solomon pivots. He's like a restless sleeper trying to find Another position, he pivots to the pursuit of pleasure because maybe there he can find a pillow soft enough to quiet his thoughts about eternity. I think maybe more than any other section of this book in Ecclesiastes, we as a culture, as a society, we already know the answers that Solomon is going to find in his pursuit of pleasure. It is the American experiment our inalienable right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's the modern way to surround ourselves, to fill our time with, with entertainment, with distractions, to take up a little bit of fun, a little bit of laughter, to take our mind off of the difficult things. And so we've tried what Solomon tries. The world around us is trying it still. It's a search for significance in full Solomonic style. Or verse 10 says, Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. We know that pursuit. It's familiar to us, and so you know the routine. You toss and you turn, you toss and you turn, you try to make yourself just a little more comfortable. Despite all of our attempts, all of our all of our attempts at wrestling meaning from pleasure, we are still left as uncomfortable and awake to the reality that is approaching us. We are still left with just one more vanity, he says. A little more striving after the wind. Nothing to be gained as we are buried under a mountain of entertainments and pleasures. We know this search. I think we can get a little more specific as we we look through the passage. What is it about about pleasure that makes it so insufficient as an answer to our questions of meaning, of eternity. As we study, I think we can see at least two answers. You might be able to come up with more as you read on your own later. But at least two reasons Solomon gives us why the pursuit of pleasure can never help us to arrive at the answers we're looking for. And the first answer that we find is that the pursuit of pleasure is terribly temporary. That's one of the problems with our pursuit of pleasure, that it's terribly temporary. In fact, that's probably a generous way to put it. In a best case scenario, some of the pleasures that we pursue uh, are, are things that evaporate just as quickly as we get our hands on them. And they're like smoke that, that escapes through our hands. And even if you, you try to grab at it, it moves just enough wind that it, that it goes away from you. Now here, especially, we encounter these temporary pleasures of entertainment and alcohol in verses 2 and 3. And to that, probably, although we skip to the end, we could probably also add the entertainments of, of song and sex in verse 8. There's a thread that runs through all of those, and that thread is the the pleasure of experience. Each of them describes uh, the attempt, the desire to to feel something, to hear something, to, to spend our time, at least for a little while, focusing on what is enjoyable rather than what is eternal. But what is enjoyable is all too often temporary. That's what Solomon tells us, and we see it as we look and consider the experience of entertainment. Verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? That is, what does it accomplish? What does it leave over when it's done? Everybody loves a good joke. Uh, You have to be a pretty, pretty sour Christian to find no humor in the world. But the reality is that that comedy has a pretty notoriously short shelf life. It's like Mary Poppins. And she takes Jane and Michael to check in on old Uncle Andrew. And there in his parlor, so long as you can keep laughing, you feel as though you could float. And there comes a time when playtime is over. And suddenly the, the hard ground of reality comes up to meet us. Or it's 2014 all over again, the year that the world remembered what we already knew about Robin Williams. Behind all the antics, behind all the jokes, there was a deep and terrible sorrow, a deep sadness. There were depths of depression and anxiety and paranoia covered uh, for decades with drugs and alcohol. And then finally a diagnosis of Parkinson's and early onset dementia. the laughter was over. And so was his life. We can try, if we want to, to, to get our hands on, on entertainment that will last. We can, we can spend our days and fill our time watching TikToks, 30 seconds, two minutes at a clip. Then you can just keep watching the next one. It will feed you a constant stream of of entertainments. It's always there. We can spend our time hunting down distractions. We can cram every waking moment with laughter, with levity, no matter how good the joke is. Eventually the punchline is going to fade. And we're going to be left with the realization that life is not nearly as amusing as we would hope it would be. And so it's useless, says the preacher, precisely, I think, because it's temporary. The same is true of the experience of alcohol. Verse 3 It says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. You hear it in that closing phrase. The few days of their life. He takes all of the colors of pleasure and he paints them on this dark backdrop of our mortality, our fleeting, finite lives. Now when we read verse 3, we need to be careful not to try too hard uh, to save Solomon from himself. Some commentators, some Christians, are almost allergic to the idea that Solomon might have gone so far in his search for pleasure that he actually became intoxicated. And so they'll say, well, actually he became a connoisseur of, of fine wines. After all, it says that his, uh, his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. And so this is, uh, uh, he became a sommelier. He knew all there was to know about wines. I don't think that's what we're supposed to come away with here. His heart is guiding him, but he still says he tried to lay hold on folly, he insists that he denied his heart no pleasure. Anything that looked good or felt good, he was going to try. In 2010, there was a, a team of researchers who published a peer-reviewed paper in some uh, fancy pants journal. And the title of the paper was, The Characterization of Behavioral and Endocrine Effects of LSD on Zebrafish." It's the sort of thing you probably get a grant for, I suppose. It sounds pretty scientific, maybe sounds pretty groundbreaking if you're into that sort of thing, but the reality is that if you're going to write that paper, you have to spend an awful lot of time taking notes on stone zebrafish. There's an experiment going on, and somebody has to be the subject of the experiment, and that is what Solomon is doing in verse 3. He's conducting an experiment. He's testing a hypothesis Maybe alcohol in sufficient quantities can alleviate the pain of human mortality. Here's the way the New Living Translation deals with verse 3. I think it's pretty good. It says, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. And so Solomon tried alcohol. He probably tried quite a bit of it. He wanted to see if that was the way. Maybe it could ease his mind long enough to put his search to sleep. But you can ask anyone who's ever woken up with a groggy headache, and they will tell you that in the morning after, your problems are still there waiting for you. It's temporary at best. And that's why some people just keep drinking. That's why some people keep smoking, some people keep shooting up, because if you're trying to escape this this one short life that you've been giving, one high is never enough. And so you keep on chasing, because it's temporary. Well, then there's the sex and the song, verse 8. Now, we're going to come back to verse 8 in a little bit, but Solomon here lists the pleasures of high art right next to the pleasures of base instinct, culture, and and song right next to concubines. I got singers, both men and women, he says, and many concubines, the delight of the children of men. It's another example of this playlist that we put on constant repeat, this entertainment that we fill our lives with so that we don't have to deal with our thoughts in the silence. Or maybe it's an example of these experiences that we think are just ours, just for our enjoyment, these intimate pleasures that are, that are just for our personal indulgence. Now, the same could be said of both of these, song and sex. The music only lasts so long as there's someone to sing. In fact, in chapter 12, at the end of the book, Solomon's going to tell us, as he gives us this long list of, uh, of metaphors for the end of our life and what it... What that experience is like, he's going to say that there's a time that comes when the voice of the daughters of song will be brought low. And the song's going to be over someday. It's only temporary. It's one of the problems of pursuing the pleasures of experience. It's one of the reasons that they can't possibly be the answer to our deepest needs in our souls because they're all so terribly temporary. Even when they're worthwhile, the experiences themselves constantly have to be refreshed and and relived and rehashed and and researched for. Far worse when, when the pleasures you're starting with are already empty at the beginning. And so the joke is only ever really funny the first time around, and some addicts will spend the rest of their lives chasing the rush of that first high. It's why pleasurable experiences pursued for their own purpose will only ever leave us wanting more. And so maybe somebody will, will want to ask Solomon, Isn't there something better? Isn't there something that lasts? Not, not pleasurable experiences, but pleasurable things. Durable goods, we could call them, things that you can look at, things that you can count, things you can achieve, things you can acquire, things that other people will look at and say, Wow, that person's really something. What about that, Solomon? I think he would tell us, No, I, I tried that too. It's not any better, actually. Now, the problem there, even with things that last, is that the pursuit of pleasure is sinfully selfish. This is our second point that. The pursuit of pleasure is sinfully selfish. Now, the key word to look for here, and it begins in verse 4, is this word, myself. In the ESV, it shows up four times, but that's because they've left half of the Hebrew occurrences out because, quite frankly, it sounds a little choppy when you put it into English. And there's this repetition, but the King James picks up all of them, and it picks them up with this tiny word, "me." And when you read it out loud, you can hear just how foolish and vain and self-centered the pursuit of pleasure really is. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. I made me pools of water. I got me servants. I gathered me silver and gold. I got me singers and women singers. And then the final crescendo after all that me, me, me is verse 9. So I was great. I was great because I got these things for me and I increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. That's the whole point. All of the pleasures of accomplishment and, and acquisition were just a big billboard to advertise to the world how wonderful Solomon was. And it can be the same way for us as we pursue those kinds of pleasures. And so maybe we pursue the pleasure of building things. We flex our creative muscle. And if you were in Sunday school today, you know that that's a good impulse. When it's pointed in the right direction. The Lord is, is the creator of all. He's made us creative to, to image forth uh, his, his image into the world. He's made us creative so we build things. It could be simple as is something that you sow, something that you plant, something that you write, something that you sing. You you want to do things to show your creativity. It could be as as big and significant a project as leading some multinational corporation into a a new realm of profitability. It doesn't matter what it is. We, We go about building things, and that's a good impulse. But Solomon pursued that impulse to unhealthy extremes verses 5 and 6, notice that especially, Uh, his language mirrors Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You see the words there? He made, he planted, he waters. He had gardens, he had parks, which really is paradises. He had full of every kind of fruit-bearing tree. That's the language of God's creation, and it's extended now through Solomon's hand. So one commentator says that he creates a little world within a world, multiform, harmonious, exquisite, a secular garden of Eden with no forbidden fruits. In other words, Solomon is building as a man in the place of God. All of his work, all of his accomplishments, they're all just for his own enjoyment. They're all to celebrate his own abilities. And in the idolatry of our hearts, we can do the same as we pursue creativity for self-congratulation. Even better, congratulation from others. (laughs) We love the praise that we get for the job well done. It feels almost better than the job itself. We love when people look at us and say, you have become great more than all that have been before you. It's the selfish pleasure of celebrating ourselves. And there's the pleasure of of things acquired, verses 7 and 8. bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. If there is anybody in all the world who could claim the joy of having stuff, it was Solomon. He was the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett of his day combined. We like to tell ourselves and remind ourselves that there are some things that money can't buy. And that's true, but you can bet your last red cent that whatever money could buy, Solomon had at least three of them. And you can read in 1 Kings 10 about the the mind-boggling amounts of silver and gold that flowed into Solomon's kingdom every day of the week. Talents of gold over and over again. Gold and silver and spices and slaves and apes and peacocks all of it coming into his kingdom. And when the queen of the south came to visit, she said that the opulence she expected didn't even begin to touch the half of what she saw. Now, here's the lesson for us, okay? This is moving from greater things to lesser things. If Solomon, in all of his wealth, a man who could have anything his heart desired, can't find ultimate pleasure in things, neither can we. It doesn't stop us from trying, but neither can we. right? Homer Simpson said to his boss, Mr. Burns, you're the richest man I know. Burns replies, yes, but I'd trade it all just to have more. <laughs> and we do the same thing. right? We have our little kingdom that, that seems pretty good for a while until we see something better something bigger, something sleeker, something newer, something that the processor is just a smidge faster than the last model, and we've got to have it because we're going to utilize all of that power, aren't we? We're going to become great. We're going to do wonderful things with the things that we can acquire for ourselves, and so it's the new gas stove. It's, it's that faster car. It's the bigger apartment. It's the iPhone 13 Pro Max Special Edition with gold trim. I don't even know if they make that one yet. The next thing comes along and we forget how satisfied we were with what we had. Then again, sometimes having more things is really about having other people see us having more things. It's a status symbol. Oh, you have have that iPhone. That came out five years ago. What are you doing? Get on uh, in the world. You know, get yourself something. Treat yourself. We, we want to be people who are advancing. We want others to see us advancing. And sometimes advancing through the things that we have. It can all become one endless pursuit of proclaiming to ourselves and proclaiming to everybody else that we're people of substance. And it's the selfish pleasure of acquiring more. I said we'd come back to verse 8, and, and here we will. We see the, the selfish pleasure of using others for your own desires Solomon says I got myself many concubines the delight of the sons of men now if you are reading the King James you're going to notice a different word there instead of concubines it says musical instruments that's a bad translation Uh, not because of a manuscript error but but maybe because it was a little too much the word that's being used here is an almost embarrassing euphemism Uh, That means women who exist solely for the sexual pleasure of somebody else. They're objects to be acquired. They're trophies that a king can put on the shelf where he keeps his harem. It's a sad reminder of the way that, that selfish pleasure is really all about us. But it doesn't mind who who it has to take advantage of. If there are people around us who can give us what we want, we will take it from them, especially if we happen to be rich or powerful or otherwise in control. And that's exactly what we know about Solomon. He was the king of a thousand partners. 1 Kings 11, verse 3 says he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. What did he get? when he acquired all those objects. Did he get meaning? Did he get significance? Did he get purpose in life, in his vanity under heaven? No, he got the pleasure of one more one-night stand. He got the pleasure of saying that he had exactly what he wanted, no matter what it cost him, and no matter what it cost anybody else, quite frankly. I don't even have to tell you the many ways that we buy into the same vain, selfish pursuit. Earthly power and human desires haven't changed in 3,000 years, and now the things that used to be available only to a king are paraded on every street corner and seen in every advertisement and hidden all over the internet for prying eyes to see. Today, Solomon's delights are an app and a swipe away. I imagine that Solomon himself might be shocked to find out how cheaply sex is bought and sold for a few moments of self-gratification. I imagine that even Solomon himself would be surprised how easy it is to turn other people into objects for your own pleasure in our culture. What Solomon would not be surprised about is the way that after all this time, the pursuit of these pleasures still leaves humanity just as empty as it did when he was trying the whole thing. David Hubbard says that pleasure has an advertising agency that's better than its manufacturing department. In other words, it's writing checks that it can't cash, right? David Gibson says all our bubbles burst eventually. Here's the way Solomon put it, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Why? Because it's terribly temporary and it's sinfully selfish. And so Solomon says that it all amounted to vanity. But what he does not say, and this is where we need to pay attention, what Solomon does not say is that he didn't enjoy himself. Right? This is is where Christians get tripped up. Solomon says he went looking for pleasure in the world, and in the world he found it. Verse 10, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. And we trip here because we realize that Scripture is telling us, again, what we already know by faith. That the pleasures of knowing God and being known by Him far outstrip any pleasures of this life and they can never replace or never even compare to the pleasure of being a child of God. We know that Scripture is telling us that. When Scripture teaches us about what it's like to belong to the Lord, it speaks to us in language of enjoyment. It speaks of fulfillment forever. Christ came that we might have life in abundance. He came to give us living water to slake our eternal thirst. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We hear that and it sounds so beautiful. And it's true. But it's so true and it's so beautiful that by comparison we almost convince ourselves that all of the empty pleasures of this life ought to help us out a little bit by being uninteresting. Now, we expect illicit sex to come with a warning label. We hope that selfish materialism will feel as ugly as it sounds. We want our secret addictions to be bland enough that they will be easy to quit, but they probably won't be earthly pleasures are pleasurable. And that's a good thing, actually. Here's, again, a a situation in which we say it's God's blessing that we live in a world that's not painted in colors of khaki everywhere and only. There are delights for our eyes and delights for our senses and delights when when we build and achieve and accomplish and acquire. In fact, as we get to the end of this section, Solomon will tell us, after all of this, vanity, vanity, vanity is going to say actually I found something that's good and it's to enjoy yourself a little bit in this life. It's part of God's blessing upon us to put us in a world where there are pleasurable pleasures. And yet it's part of our disordered desires that we are constantly searching for satisfaction in things that aren't supposed to satisfy us. It is part of our inward bent towards sin That we can make an idol out of any indulgence. That's why we're still trying to answer the question of existence with the pursuit of pleasure. That's why we're still going after the same pleasures that Solomon found 3,000 years ago. We're still filling our souls with the same pursuit, only to find that our souls are still as empty as they were when we started. And yet we keep up the pursuit. Because earthly pleasures are so pleasurable and because we're so easily entertained that left to our own devices, we'll find a way to convince ourselves that selfishness is sanity and temporary is probably long enough. Now Jesus says, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. That's what he says. Jesus asks, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And we can agree with the calculation. Right? We can understand the logic in the Savior's words, yet our wandering hearts keep looking at the world with all of its dainties and salivating over the thought of experience and accomplishment and acquisition. Scripture can tell us what we already know. And Solomon can warn us of the vanity of pleasure, but until our hearts are released from our bondage to slavery and sin and self, the pleasures of the Lord will always seem smaller than the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. It is precisely why the Father sent his Son into the world. Jesus says he came into the world to seek and to save that which is lost, but we don't often take time to stop and think about what exactly is it that we're lost in? What have we been lost to? Well, we've been lost to the sinful pursuit, attempts to replace eternal joys with temporary jollies. That's what we've been lost to. Blaise Pascal summarizes our human condition. He says, all men seek happiness, this is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end, the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, is the same desire in both, to be happy. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. To be happy. To pursue pleasure. We're bound to it. We're enslaved to it. And so in the end, the answer for our restlessness can't just be finding one more happiness to pursue. In fact, the answer to our our restlessness isn't even in learning how useless all of our pleasures actually are. The only answer to our, our restlessness is to receive a new heart. One that's been freed by the Holy Spirit working in us. That's the answer to our freedom our freedom from sin, it's the work of the Spirit of God enabling us to believe what we don't believe on our own. That the pleasures of God are more solid and longer lasting than all the distracting pleasures we fill our days with under the sun. And this is exactly what God gives to his children through Christ. Christ is the suffering servant who counted a pleasure To fulfill all God's will for our salvation. Christ is the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Forsaking its shame. Christ is the one who became our forerunner. The author and the finisher of our faith. To make us able to hope for what we don't see yet. To make us able to wait for it with patience. That's the answer, is a new life through Christ, through his sacrifice for us, through his spirit indwelling us. The answer is a new heart, sprinkled clean from the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Christ came not to make the pleasures of this life less pleasurable. He came to give the desires of our hearts a deepness that earthly joys can't touch. In just a moment, we're going to come the table. And quite frankly, week after week, moving from Ecclesiastes to the table of the Lord, it seems a little hard. I'm here with you. I realize it seems like whiplash. We're talking about vanity. We're talking about eternal things. But notice what Ecclesiastes is doing. It's teaching us to look for something better, to look for something longer lasting. We're going to come to a table where Christ tells his people that as often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I come again. What is the table of the Lord but a table of waiting? It's a table of desiring better things. It's a table that teaches us again and again what we already know if we're in Christ. That at his right hand, our pleasures forevermore, and we walk out of this room and we involve ourselves in all the selfish, temporary things because... That's what's easy. This table is to draw us by faith back to him, to keep us looking, to keep us watching, to keep us waiting until he returns, to keep us believing what's hard for our eyes to see. But there are pleasures in God and Christ for his people that this world could never touch. We're going to come to the table together. And if you're his, that promise is for you but there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Foundationally, the pleasure of being his. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord our God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you lead your people to yourself. We pray, oh Lord, that you would keep us trusting in you and walking with you and yearning for you. Keep us, oh Lord coming to you to be filled all over again with the joy, the strength of the Lord. Help us to trust in you. Give us rejoicing in Christ's name and pleasures in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.